Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, let us turn now to commercial real estate. It is suffering, that's for sure. Let's bring in somebody who knows a lot about it. He is founder of International Workplace Group, otherwise known as IWG Global. Mark Dixon joins us now. Mark, just give us the lay of the land, first of all. Well, the lay of the land is not even. Um, The pandemic has hit the... uh, uh, metropolis city centers around the world. We operate in 120 countries, and that's been the major impact. So in provincial locations, countryside, we're up, and we're badly affected in downtown. So people are working close to where they live, and they're working from home. Our homework business has grown tenfold um, over the pandemic, and we're slightly hedged with that. So, Mark, I guess uh, one of the questions that people are, are asking here is the future of the city center itself. And this is, a, I guess, a global question. It's not just London and, and New York. What is your view as we look towards the other side of this pandemic about how the city center as a work center uh, will evolve? It changes forever. It's rapid okay. evolution. Um, you know, the, the, the cities will never be the same again. Uh, it will take some time for the change to take place because people have to get out of leases that they're already in. But pretty much 50%, 60% of all CEOs and leadership teams are now positively in a mode of hybrid working. Hybrid working means the company saves lots of money, they can hire better talent, and they allow people to work either from home or close to home and they come into a sort of headquarters uh, when they need to, or if they haven't got, a, they live in the city itself. So, you know, hybrid working has such strong economic and environmental advantages, it's going to happen, and it's what people want. They've, whatever people say, for most, the pandemic has gone on for too long, but they have been quite productive working on Zoom, Teams, and the like. You know, companies, it it has worked. It's an experiment that worked and it will continue and it will become the norm. So talk to us about occupancy rates. Can you give us a sort of a percentage across your portfolio and and also where you might be thinking of getting out of commercial real estate the way it is now and changing it into something like storage or what have you? Well, look, for us, we've got three and a half thousand buildings um we're in all sorts of markets so look we are expanding in the countryside we have been for a while actually because this change was occurring pre the pandemic it's just accelerated with it um and so we we're expanding in the countryside we are adding more even in the cities because it's not what companies are looking for a flexibility they're looking for products they don't you know what companies don't want uh, or want less of is a five or ten year lease. They they want flexibility. They want product. So this for a company like ours, where we provide a fully operational office ready to use for a couple of people or for a thousand people. You know that that is what's being being looked for. So we're working more um, with property owners who 
um, are at the other end of this. If they're long in the market, they are looking for different ways to get revenue and providing a finished product is, is a great way to do that. So we are seeing some growth. We are adding capacity in some cities. We would expect that to continue. So it's um, more in the countryside, the cities, the provinces, where people live. And um, in, in the cities themselves, apart from adding inventory, we're having to adjust prices of our, our input prices. I, with our partners, we're having to lower our costs in order to be more competitive because it's going to be a much more competitive marketplace because there's going to be less demand, more supply. So, Mark, in some of these big city centers, I, you know, I just think the last time I was in London, there's cranes everywhere. What are some of these commercial real estate owners going to do with all this office space? Well, it's um, uh, it's going to get repurposed. I mean, look, this, the, the real estate market is, is a market that's very fickle. And I've I started our business 31 years ago, and I've seen it go up and down. And it's it is markets like London that have more oscillation. The bigger the city, the more the move. Um, but, you know, in the future, you know, cities are going to have to reinvent themselves and become uh, a more reasonably priced place to live. And, you know, the cost of office space will have to come down over time. So it has to be economical for both for companies to be there. London, as an example, became extremely expensive yep. per person to house someone. And... The cost of living, i.e., you know, people finding an apartment close to where they live and not having to commute for two hours a day to get there, it's that combination. So there will be a repricing, and I'm sure many cities will reinvent themselves right. with lower prices and attract people back in. Hey, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Just a fascinating discussion. We really appreciate your insight. Mark Dixon, founder and CEO of IWG Global, uh, just giving us the view the forecast, if you will, of real estate in urban centers, a major evolution taking place. Let's uh, pivot to the consumer packaged goods business. That's certainly seen some changes here as a result of the pandemic. We can do that with Jordan Gaspar. Jordan is managing partner and president of uh, AF Ventures, joining us on the phone from Wellington, Florida. AF Ventures is a 100% women-owned VC firm focusing on better-for-you consumer brands, in categories including food and beverage, beauty and personnel care, health and wellness, and a whole bunch of others. Jordan, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about the consumer packaged goods business. It seems, obviously, as a result of the pandemic, people are buying a lot more in the supermarket, going out less to eat. What are you seeing as some of those trends, and, and how permanent might they be? Hi, thank you so much for having me. So um, as you said, I, I'm managing partner of AF Ventures, and we are a fund that exclusively invests in consumer products across the verticals of food and beverage, personal care, pet, beauty, health, and wellness. Um, and so of our over 35 companies, um, 32 of them are food and beverage companies. And so it's been an, an interesting year for us, um, particularly as all of our products are distributed um, at most of the major retailers as well as online. Um, you know, 2020 will mark the year of changing consumption patterns. You know, we saw um, an increased emphasis of the consumer on self-care products, um, the rise of personalization, and just this general idea of food as health, um, you know, coming in formats like ingestible beauty. Um, beyond that, we saw 
Uh, the food itself, you know, continued to evolve as people were focusing on, you know, healthy living directed products like plant-based alternatives. Um, but now with this new concept of the grab and stay option, you know, with so many people no longer going to eat out, people need to find solutions that were easily adopted in their homes. Um, and so we'll see a lot of changes in 2021 in terms of format, packaging, and continents itself, and, and really playing into sort of a rise in sustainability in the space in general. Okay, I cannot then, wait to hear about some of that. But first, you have to give me an idea of what ingestible beauty is. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> ingestible beauty, I mean, you know, there's sort of a blurring of the line between personal care, beauty, and food that's been occurring. And it had started and predated COVID, but, you know, we've invested in a company called the Nuco, which is a line of products geared towards, um, you know, you know, supporting skin, gut, mood, health, um, and covers, you know, different needs, states of sleep, immunity, focus, and stress, and comes in powder formats and capsules and tinctures. Huh. And so the idea is, is that um, it's not just going to be topicals that you put on your skin, but it's also going to be, you know, things that you put inside your body. And so if you think about, you know, some of the really big focus, you know, coming out of this year and exits in the space, you know, VMS has been, uh, has had a really huge year in terms of people really thinking about how to take care of themselves from within. So how are brands dealing, um, Jordan, with kind of much more of the e of shopping, including uh, consumer products, uh, moving to e-commerce? How are they adopting to that? It's a new world for food and beverage, right? You know, we knew that we had Amazon and, you know, e-tail in the form of Fresh Direct, um, you know, that were already players in the market. Um, but during COVID, click and collect um, and the ability for consumers to be purchasing from Walmart and Target more easily um, has, has really risen. And, and that will be a more permanent shift. You know, people will go back eventually um, into perusing shelves and brick and mortar, but there will be large spread adoption of some of these new um, you know, sort, of, sort of omni distribution uh, outlets. You know, beyond that, you know, Digital marketing itself is going to change. You know, for the first time, we're seeing fresh and frozen food companies um, that are authentic young brands developing D2C strategies. And so, you know, we're going to see what comes out of this is just the true omni-channel brand um, and that brands will be built expecting to be sold in brick and mortar as well as directly to their consumers. Jordan, how many times have you been approached by SPACs in the last few months for your various portfolio companies? It, it is it is a stack moment in the <laughs> consumer. <laughs> so um, I think that there is an enormous amount of stack activity in the market, um, and and we do think that you know stacks will certainly find some um, great partners in food and beverage in particular, but across consumer. So go on. How many times are there are there <laughs> portfolio companies that you might be looking to go public with that way? Um, I think that the public markets have really opened up for food and beverage. And I okay. think that we do see that the, with the success of companies like Beyond and Tattooed Chef, there is no question. Um, there is now the strategy for, you know, liquidity for these companies to not just be private, but also to, you know, in terms of private equity and sponsors, but to be increasingly in the public markets. Um, and so there'll be a lot of different outcomes, but it, it, there is, it will be a big year in food and beverage. So, Jordan, are new products coming to market during this pandemic or are consumer products companies saying our R&D, our new product launches, we're going to wait till after? Depends on who you're talking to. Um, so I, I think that from the vantage point of our portfolio, new products are certainly coming to market. There was in, you know, a, a little bit of a brief pause on innovation where pipelines were halted very temporarily early on during COVID 
for the um, the portfolio companies to get their bearings and see you know how things were unfolding in retail. But that innovation was in process, and so there's innovation that's now in process to come onto shelf and did through the back half of the year as well as in, will in 2021, because suppliers that were able to deliver and to meet the expectations of their buyers were certainly allocated shelf space. Um, beyond that, there are new preferences that have been built. And so innovation lines are being developed off of changing consumer preferences. So, you know, we think innovation continues to thrive. Um, it will just be, you know, sort of uh, quality manufacturers who have the ability to, to really um, properly stock the shelves and to deliver in a way that people can trust that the products are going to meet expectations of both the retail partners and the consumer. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll certainly keep in touch with you throughout the year. No doubt there will be activity among your companies. Jordan Gaspar is managing partner and president of AF Ventures, a very interesting consumer and packaged goods and beauty company uh, venture fund. Let's put it that way. This morning, we received another jobless claims number, frustratingly higher, much higher than expected, almost a, a million claims uh, last month, really putting pressure on President-elect Biden to uh, put through and propose a much uh, a, a significant fiscal stimulus plan. To break it down, we welcome Carl Riccadonna, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. Carl, let's start with that jobless claim number. What's your takeaway? Well, there's good news and there's bad news, Paul. Uh, the uh, bad news is that uh, nearly a million people filed for uh, unemployment insurance uh, last week. Uh, but the uh, good news is that a million people will be receiving unemployment checks to uh, support their uh, income uh, during this uh, difficult period uh, for the economy. And, and one of the critical uh, you know, issues for the economy is uh, building a, a bridge loan uh, until we can reopen the economy. And a lot of households, whether we look at the, uh, income trends or food stamp applications or uh, other types of uh, signs of uh, financial stress, are uh, really in a difficult period right now. Uh, so we do need to uh, paper over some of the pain, patch up some of the pain uh, with the aid uh, in terms of food stamps, unemployment checks, and rebate checks uh, from the government uh, until we get, can get to a, uh, a post-lockdown economy. In this week's data, we see nearly more than 200,000 people, more than economists were looking for, claiming this week to January 9th, which is an interesting sort of little detail in itself. Each one of these people, not a detail, of course, they're all human beings. And I'm curious as to why economists might have got it so wrong. Are there more people out there unemployed and underemployed that we're just not seeing? Well, I think a, a big factor here, there's been uh, a little bit of a mystery since uh, early November when uh, lockdown measures started to intensify. Uh, we really didn't see the fallout in the unemployment uh, uh, filings data. So we, we expected uh, way back by uh, before Thanksgiving even uh, to start to see the steady move higher in jobless claims over the last really last eight weeks or so. Uh, and it only happened to a very limited degree, which seemed inconsistent with restaurants being shut down, indoor dining bans, and all of the other restrictions that are going into place. So uh, while I, I hate to be vindicated uh, in looking for that, uh, we do see that showing up in today's data. So you know, at this time of year, there's very big seasonal factors as people are laid off, as cold weather sets in, if they had outdoor employment, for instance, uh, or uh, holiday-related hiring, all of those things. Uh, they tend to uh, distort the data, and this is certainly an atypical period we're in. So using typical seasonal factors is hard to 
uh, applied to the current environment, but it's really the best uh, we can do as, uh, as statisticians. Uh, the other factor is, uh, with the recent passage of the, the stimulus bill, uh, those sweetened uh, unemployment uh, checks and also uh, stimulus checks, that does incentivize some people who maybe figured it wasn't worth filing for unemployment uh, to actually uh, take the effort uh, to, to do it now that there'll be a, a more enticing uh, reward uh, if their application is accepted. Carl, we're expected to hear from President-elect Biden uh, later today talking about uh, perhaps a fiscal stimulus plan. What do you really need to see in his plan? Well, there's the, the pie-in-the-sky version, and uh, there's the reality of a, uh, a, a split Senate uh, with the Vice President uh, Kamala Harris uh, casting the deciding vote. And so pie-in-the-sky stimulus, which could be uh, green energy and infrastructure investment and, uh, of course, aid uh, for uh, uh, you know, the, the current uh, economic uh, downturn, uh, that would be great if we could see that, and that would certainly push GDP to a higher number. Uh, but I think the reality of the situation is that we're going to see uh, much more limited stimulus. Already, Joe Manchin of uh, West Virginia uh, has expressed some concerns about uh, astronomical price tags. So I, I think the reality will be uh, we can talk about a $2 trillion plan. We're more likely to see 600 to $800 billion. Carl, speaking of major speeches today, we hear from Fed Chair Jay Powell. Is he likely to say anything that will surprise the market? I don't think so. Uh, Jay Powell is uh, giving, uh, speaking on a, uh, an academic lecture at uh, the uh, Princeton University uh, Bendheim Center uh, for Finance. Uh, so uh, I'm an alumni of that. Uh, so that's exciting <laughs> in that regard. Uh, but uh, as an election, you know, as a, uh, uh, an opportunity to really steer the markets, this doesn't seem like uh, the right platform to be doing that. So at best, I think we might get some insight uh, into how he is thinking about the in- inflation and growth landscape, but this is not the opportunity uh, to really uh, create a, a new policy signal. Carl Riccadonna, thank you as always. Carl is Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics, and we always appreciate his insights. Once again, that initial jobless claims data coming out and just, you know, sending chills down our spines. 965,000 people filing claims to the week of January 9th. And of course, uh, the week earlier was revised, but only by 5,000. It's it's not like we're not seeing what's in the data, or it's not like yeah, the data are opaque or anything like that. We also got uh, continuing claims, obviously 5.271 million, uh, which is more than we were anticipating as well. It is 10.48 on Wall Street. Time for Bloomberg Opinion. Today we are joined by Elisa Martinuzzi, Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering finance, and she has a fascinating column out today talking about and analyzing the relationship between President Trump, his businesses, and Deutsche Bank. Elisa, thanks so much for joining us here. It seems like we're seeing a lot of corporations trying to back away and distance themselves from the president and his companies. That's not going to be so easy for Deutsche Bank to do, is it? Yes, no, that's right. I think, um, you know, what you have to consider is that this is um, an ongoing and very long-standing lending relationship, one that has been going on for decades um, to begin with, but also one that will linger because though we understand that Deutsche Bank has now committed not to be doing any new business with Donald Trump nor his companies or his entities, 
they are still sitting on loans that uh, Donald Trump owes um, owes Deutsche Bank, and it's going to be a little bit tricky to extricate themselves from that relationship for a number of reasons. First and foremost, um, you know, it may not be easy to find any anyone that's willing to take on that debt off them. But even if they did, this long-standing relationship we know is going to be on come under the microscope. We know it's going to be scrutinised. There are several investigations ongoing at various levels that could well see Deutsche Bank being dragged out, um, not so much because they've been necessarily accused of any wrongdoing, but certainly their business practices will come under the radar. There's a bit of a theory out there, and I don't know how serious it is or if it was just something that was floated, that, you know, people of a democratic-leaning bent, let's say, who might run credit shops or whatever, might pick this stuff up for very cheap and... uh, Try to get something from Donald Trump. Yes, no, that that you know could could well happen. But in terms of where Deutsche Bank's relationship goes and where Deutsche Bank's um, you know its history hitherto and its relation with Donald Trump, that will remain potentially um, under scrutiny. And you know when it comes to their business practices, um, you know this is a bank that has um, you know tried in, in recent years very hard to um, you know rebuild its image to improve controls, improve governance after decades of, of exponential growth that basically saw it, you know, taking on greater and greater risk. And that's resulted in, um, you know, allegations and, and, you know, fines for many, many billions of dollars. Um, and, you know, this is just going to reignite that interest in the businesses of, of Deutsche Bank and how it goes about winning, um, winning clients and winning business. Lisa, it's going to be fascinating to see how the president and his uh, business uh, fund themselves going forward because up until this point, there was no other money center uh, institution lending money to the Trump corporation. It came down to Deutsche Bank was the only one, and it wasn't even the corporate and investment bank at Deutsche Bank. It was the private bank, and now the private banker for President Trump has left Deutsche Bank. So it it really raises the questions how the Trump organization will capitalize its business going forward. What do we know about that? I think that's you know extremely early to speculate on that. Um, you know, you're right. They do. You know, Deutsche Bank appears to be the principal lender, but you know there may be more that we learn about these finances um, going forward. Um, I, I think it's you know a little bit too early to speculate. I mean, clearly, um, he will be a you know he is and will remain a polarizing figure. Um, and, and that will affect, you know, his dealings and the, the, you know, the dealings of those who have been, you know, enabling him over the years. And of course, we also had uh, Signature, which is a much smaller boutique kind of bank. Yeah. Who might take over from them? Will anybody step up to the plate? As I said, I think I think it's a little bit early to, you know, to speculate on all this. Um, I think what, what we do know is that, you know, obviously. Um, you know, a lot of businesses, a lot of institutions have been distancing themselves and, and vowing not to do business with Trump and his organizations, um, from, from including the city of New York, the PGA and its, and its golf tournaments. Um, and that is, you know, undoubtedly will have repercussions on, on his entourage. Elisa, how concerned is Deutsche Bank, do you believe, uh, about its reputation uh, and maybe maybe the business risk it faces from some of its customers saying, we don't want to do business with you? Are they concerned about, or how concerned are they about this going forward? 
I think you know this could be you know a moment in which you know perhaps there's, there's more support in 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 what in how Deutsche Bank may try to um, you know sever that relationship. Um, certainly more support than it might have had you know in, you know before last week. Um, I think what what is um, certainly um, the case is that you know they are trying to maintain their market share in the U.S. If not grow their market share in the U.S., it's still a very important business for anyone, for, for an investment bank such as Deutsche Bank. Um, and it, it is one in which, you know, that will draw headlines, um, which, whichever way you cut it. And, you know, that's not often, not often good for an investment bank. You obviously, uh, you know, look at all aspects of Deutsche Bank's reputation here and point out in your column that institutional shareholder services rate Deutsche Bank D minus, which is the lowest score. And ISS is extraordinarily well respected and also sort of, you know, bound by when it comes to institutional investing. So how long does it take for, you know, a major, major institution like Deutsche Bank to sort of rehabilitate its reputation? That's a good question. I think, uh, you know, the, the focus on um, on ESG is only increasing as we speak, and investors are uh, paying more attention to it. And um, you know, it'll, it, there's a long, long list of situations that Deutsche Bank has been involved in um, that have led to this score. Um, and it'll certainly take time. I mean, this isn't something that you fix um, in, in a year or so. This is, you know, this will have to. They'll have to demonstrate that their controls. Um, and, and governance has improved, um, and and you know that that yeah, as I said, something that takes you know years, not months. Lisa, how important is the U.S. market to Deutsche Bank? They obviously have their challenges in their home market of Germany, but they've really tried for decades to become a major player here in the U.S. with mixed results. I think you know they totally clearly are, clearly are, but they're um, you know they have a scale down. Uh, strategy now for the investment bank. They're not offering uh, as broad a, a suite of products as some of their competitors. They're much more focused, especially in the U.S. But, you know, the Americas still count for about a third of their investment banking revenue. And there are pockets of business where, you know, being big on Wall Street is absolutely essential. If you take um, IPOs and SPACs last year, um, you know, IPO uh, underwriting revenue was, was the biggest um, among all the regions that Deutsche Bank covers. So there are pockets of business where you absolutely have to be in the US and have to be big. Very briefly, Elisa, how are the banks in London contending with Brexit these days? Well, we've had, um, you know, the most significant shift we've had so far has been the one in share trading. Uh, you've seen uh, European shares now being almost exclusively traded on the continent, so away from London. That is a big shift for London. Um, but we know we're going to be learning more uh, as the weeks progress, as we see more activity going through the market. Yeah, absolutely. And Elisa is all over it always. Elisa Martinuzzi is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering finance. And her latest is Deutsche Bank's Trump links will prove sticky. Obviously, Deutsche said that it wants to pull back and won't do any further business with Donald Trump. But of course, it does already have business in the works. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.